All right, guys, welcome back to my podcast. Today, I'm going to discuss some of the highlights and topics and takeaways that I got from this week's modules and activities and readings. I decided to break it up into two sections. And section one will be, I will be discussing underrepresentation. And then section two, I will discuss the ideal graduate, which was mainly the module activity part of this this week. So to start off, my first topic will be underrepresentation and curriculum. And you know, it really struck me when the majority of our curriculum studies reader um, textbook reading assignment this week, it, it really discussed the underrepresentation in our classrooms and how impactful it can be. For example, on page 227, Watkins says that the U.S. public schooling and curriculum have failed African Americans by not providing the appropriate cultural foundations for learners. And that's cited in Flanders and Thornton of 2017. I truly agree with this in that our curriculum doesn't specifically highlight the African American history um, or just their ancestry or important American le- African American leaders or people in general, um, even you know prior to the slave trade, they're just simply overlooked or just not addressed at all simply because it's not in our curriculum. So teachers don't typically talk about it. It really made me realize that African American students don't have that specific connection or potentially a sense of belonging since their history isn't even being represented. It's not even being taught. So they have no one to look up to, and that is so sad to me. Watkins later refers to Van Sertema's 1990 comment on the pathological labels that our public schools put on African history. Um, Some of the examples that he notes are that we label them as at risk underclass, disadvantaged. These give such a negative connotation to the African history, and it really made me realize that, you know, we need to be more mindful of some of the um, labels, I guess, you know, that we put on, on certain cultures, but maybe not even realize it just because that's what the textbooks do. So I, I really do have respect, a lot of respect for the redemptionists, Uh, mentioned by Watkins on page 231 about people who want to redeem Africa's history and legacy um, and their people within their own schools and American schools. And I really just think it would be a great, a great idea to um, encompass and incorporate more of that history uh, because that is part of our world's history. Um, Another group that is underrepresented in our curriculum would be women. And there's a section of our Flanders and Thornton textbook um, by the American Association of University Women. And they say on page 236 that there are rarely dual and balanced treatment of women and men. And seldom are women's perspectives and cultures presented on their own terms. And that's cited in Flanders and Thornton. Thornton, um, 2017. Now, I know, I don't know about you, but I know that I didn't learn a whole lot about women in school. 
Um, you know, you do learn about Rosa Parks, um, Amelia Earhart. You, you learn about the main women, but I don't know. I, I guess I just, I just wish that it were more inclusive and that we were more represented um, along with the African Americans. I mean, we don't have anybody to look up to or to strive to be like. Um, I, I really like the idea that the American Association of University Women know about Wilbur's idea to a gender fair curriculum. And this is on page 237. She notes that the, the attributes to a gender fair curriculum are variation, inclusive, accurate, affirmative, representative, and integrated. And that's cited in Flanders and Thornton, uh, 2017. I think that I would agree with that. In order to do this, there should be steps or levels of integrating these ideas because it can't just be forced into the curriculum or into people's heads, you know, straight out. That's just not how it works. So, um, there are some steps that Banks notes in Flanders and Thornton of 2017 that there are four ways that ethnic content can be incorporated into curriculum. And those steps are the contributions approach, the additive approach, the transformation approach, and the social action approach. That's on page 238. And I think that that's, you know, that more women's history and more women's leaders should be taught. So I would completely back this, these four steps up I think that it's a gradual approach, which might be more apt to adherence um, and to keep that within our curriculum. So it, it also talked about girls and in school and how they receive less interaction by the teachers during class, which that can lead to um, what our textbook notes as depression, social issues, eating disorders, substance use, higher sexual activity, and STDs. Um, it's true what the American Association of of university women say on page 250 that classrooms must become places where girls and boys can express feelings and discuss personal experiences. That's cited in, on in Flanders and Thornton of 2017. You know, I, classrooms now are in need more than ever of an, of an inviting atmosphere where students can express their feelings. And they can discuss personal experiences. I think with technological advances and um, the change that we are going through, students have more um, socio-emotional issues that we need to encompass in the classroom. We need to be welcoming of that in the classroom. Which also leads to my thought that teachers need to be more equipped with that. So I think there should be some sort of a... I don't know, professional development of some sort, uh, maybe talking about those four levels uh, that Bates was talking about um, for incorporating that, for incorporating um, ethnic content into the curriculum. So I'm not sure how, how that would work out, but I think one solution to all of this could be the cooperative learning mentioned by Johnson and Johnson in Belonka and Brandt 20, 2010 on page 202, where they say 
Cooperative-based groups are long-term, heterogeneous, cooperative learning groups with stable membership in which students provide one another with support, encouragement, and assistance to make academic process. So I just think that this would be important to have heterogeneous small groups together, um, maybe to help the underrepresented students feel more included and a part of the whole classroom. So I would group my students, obviously, a heterogeneous mix, a mix of race, of ethnicity, of, of academic level. <laughs> and they may be also be able to bounce off ideas uh, off of each other in case their background knowledge just isn't there or, um, you know, they can they can help each other formulate ideas. So I think it's it's also important to note that Johnson and Johnson said that cooperative learning, constructive constructive controversy, and integrative negotiations provide students with the essential skills necessary to address 21st century challenges in the more collaborative school and work environment. And that's cited in Belonka and Brandt 2010 of in page 206. Um, this method of cooperative learning enhances the love and the dynamic for and of diversity in the classroom. So, I, you know, I think that's that's super important when you have a heterogeneous mix in your classroom. Another solution to this is what the UDL textbook notes on page 68, that with the learner at the center, the, the curriculum is now defined or labeled by how adequately it can support and accommodate the diversity and variability of learners. Learners of all abilities and from all backgrounds are provided with optimal levels of challenges and scaffolds and are supported in developing learning expertise. Cited by Meyer, Rose, and Gordon, 2014. So to me, it seems like the UDL is the framework that we should really be looking towards or going towards. Um, when coming or verging away from underrepresentation. It notes that with clear goals, effective assessment that improves teaching and learning, diverse teaching and instructional methods with readily support, varied and flexible or differentiated materials, all students can learn regardless of their learning or ethnic barriers. This is the kind of philosophy and the way of teaching that we need to adapt with this changing world that we live in. That's going to help all of our students become more successful. So um, my, my next section within this topic of underrepresentation would be students with a lack of, of accessibility to technology in a very technology-driven world. So I don't think it's detrimental for us. I think it is detrimental for us to expect that all students have the accessibility at home when they really don't. And, you know, we need to try to prepare all students, regardless of, of their accessibility, for the 21st century skills, um, including the, the technological spectrum and technology in general. So I liked what Lemke in Belonka and Brandt 2010 said. She says, the responsibility of educators is to ensure that today's students are ready to live, learn, work, and thrive in this high-tech global, highly particip participatory world. To that end, U.S. school systems are conspicuously out of sync with the culture of today's society. And that was on page 144. 
So Lemke notes this in 2010, but I honestly think that that's true for 2022. Would you agree? I mean, a decade later, where even more technological advances have been made, and and this is still true, I just don't understand how, as a society, with all the resources we have um, readily available, we can't be in sync with the daily changing culture that we have. It, it's it's truly detrimental to our students and their learning paths. I don't, I just don't know if it's like if we're hanging on to ideals um, to prevent change, or maybe the generation prior to us is is holding on to that. I don't know, but I do like when Lemke notes that to ensure U.S. students are ready. To thrive in today's goal knowledge-based society, our school needs to our schools need to embrace the innovation of visualization, dem, democratiz- democratization of knowledge, and participatory cultures of learning. And that was cited in Belonga and Brandt, twenty ten, um, in page two sixty eight. So I would completely agree that. Our schools need to realize and and understand the innovation that we are facing. Students are going to have to live within that. They are our leaders. They're our future leaders. We have to prepare them for that. So I don't feel like we as educators are, are equipped for that. Um, all right, so my next section... I want to move away from underrepresentation and into the ideal graduate and Ohio's plan for the the ideal graduate. This is going to talk more about our coursework, like our our module work. Um, (laughs) I would first like to point out Ohio's plan and framework for attributes of a high school graduate, which are listed on the education.ohio.gov website on page 29 as foundational knowledge and skills, well-rounded content, critical thinking and problem-solving skills, resiliency, grit and work ethic, communication, oral and written, engaged citizens, cultural awareness, collaboration and teamwork, adaptability and agility, social, emotional, and interpersonal skills, curiosity, discovery and growth mindset, gathering information and discerning that information, innovative and creative. I really think that the picture that they painted here sounds amazing for a graduate to shoot for. Um, The attributes and characteristics Ohio expects of a graduate are are well-rounded. And to me, they seem very beneficial and all of those are applicable to the real world and, and just life which I think coming out of grade school is really important to have. So I'll be honest, my high school, my, my schooling experience, they really did prepare us, I think, to the best of their ability to, you know, to encompass all of those attributes that Ohio's plan um, and framework note. However, I do feel like I could have been more equipped with maybe the critical thinking and problem-solving skills with um, sometimes sometimes I think it's maybe cultural awareness maybe that needs to be um, increased 
And I know a lot of students struggled, at least in my grade when I, when we graduated, was with emotional and interpersonal skills. Um, it, it was just hard to deal with things, I guess. They didn't provide a lot of support. And I think that that could have been a lot better. But I don't know if that was just my school or what. So, um, you know, to me, the ideal graduate is always changing. It has to evolve in order for for success to even happen. So we need to, to the way that we develop it is to kind of look at the world that we're in and look at the changes, look at the innovations that we have. We look at the, the history of what a graduate used to look like, what we think it should look like, and, and that's how we decide on what it should look like. There was someone in the... Um, discussion board from this past week that noted that a a huge deciding factor in what the ideal graduate looks like comes from the community. You know, we need to get communal um, support and input from parents and and just the community in general, especially if we want our students to be engaged citizens. We want them to have a say in it. So I think an important factor in determining this is to kind of examine what period we are currently in. We're in a digital age where technology is growing and evolving quicker than ever. So I just think that students need to, um, the, the, the actual ideal graduate needs to evolve along with this time. So maybe a more frequent evaluation or reevaluation of what the ideal graduate would be would be more beneficial. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. These were just some of my thoughts and takeaways from this week's readings. I hope you have a great rest of your day.